Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. So with that being said, Vandro, let's start the recording here. Here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Evandro Magalis. Evandro, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here and happy to address your and anybody else's questions on language and anything else uh, leadership. And folks, a few housekeeping. Evandro is the chief language officer at KUDO. He's also been the chief interpreter for the UN. He's a linguist. And that means he knows a little bit about language and how people interpret it differently. So, Evandra, the first question I have for you today is why interpreting? How did you get into this profession? Well, how I got into it is kind of different in terms of uh, compared to how other people get into it, right? It's uh, often said that interpreting as a profession kind of finds you rather than you finding it. So in my case, that was totally true. So I, I bumped into it by accident. I was, and I've told this story many times. Yeah. I used to work as a clerk for the Houses of Parliament in Brazil. And I happened to spread the rumor that I could speak uh, good English because I was bored out of my mind doing what I was doing, <laughs> which was just pushing paper and so on. And I was looking for a better, a better placement. And, and again, I had my CV under my arm all day. And whenever I had some free time, I was talking to people about what I could and could not do. So one day I get a phone call. And the question I hear is, Evandro, are you wearing a suit and tie? Because there are places in the house that you can only transit through if you're properly dressed. And I said, yes, out of coincidence, I am. So yeah, come down to the, to the office of the president, the, the speaker of the house. And I did, not knowing, not having a clue as to what I was getting into. And once I got into that little room, they said, listen, we have a guest coming. This, uh, it's a, man, a member of the royal family. He does not speak Portuguese, of course, and we, we need somebody to mediate the conversation. So you're going to you sit go. here, whatever he says, you spit that out in Portuguese and, and the other way around. So if he says anything in English, we want to hear that in Portuguese. Cool, right? I said, no, because I've never done this. I have no, no idea. But you speak English, don't you? And that's, again, in people's mind, all it takes is the ability to speak two different languages for you to be an interpreter. Long story short, I, I, and I kicked and screamed, and, and I tried to, to disengage from that all I could. My boss was like almost seven foot tall, and he mm -hmm. kind of pushed me down the seat and said, you got this. Don't worry. This is, yeah, you got this. And uh, before I know, people are in the in the room, and uh, you know the press is uh, following them. There's a lot of pictures being taken and footage and so on, and, and uh, the conversation starts. 
clearly it was a very easygoing conversation. Again, this is just chit chat for 20 minutes and, and kind of, you know, pleasantries being exchanged and so on. And I was doing, again, the best I could to try and mediate the conversation and kind of proud of myself for even surviving the, the, that ordeal. And, but also scared to my bones, right? Because at every step of the way, you can potentially mess it up in a big way, right? If, if oh, you yeah. get it wrong, you don't understand if you say something wrong and so on and so forth. So at the end of that experience, at the end of those 20 minutes, I was, again, relieved, but also hooked. So the, the rush of adrenaline had been so interesting, so good that I said, you know what, this is a lot more exciting than the, you know, mind numbing uh, work uh, they're asking right, right, me to right. do. So I started, uh, again, making myself available for anything else that would come. And lo and behold, they had those ambassadors coming every week to present their credentials and so on. And similar conversations needed to be had. And I became the de facto interpreter of, you know, for, to the Speaker of the House in Brazil. Again, training as I went and, and teaching myself interpreting as I went mm. on the basis of just trying to do my best. So that's not what I recommend for people listening to this who want to break into the profession. The profession is a lot more organized uh, these days. Uh, we're talking 40 years in the past, right? 30 years in the past, 1992. So now, of course, you 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 got to go to a school and you got to learn the right uh, techniques and you need specific credentials to even break into some of the organizations, which is what I did later. I you know, put my career on hold. I had already done this for like 15 years, but I put my career on hold, went to the Monterey Institute in the U.S. to actually get a degree. So eventually I got a degree in conference interpretation. And from there, I went to the U.N. and in many, many more doors opened to me by combining the experience with the degree. Well, I mean, talk about being in the right place, you know, at the right time and then also creating your own path, doing something that's different. This isn't a traditional way to get into it, but through those experiences, you kind of, you know, you set yourself apart from a lot of those other translators. But I also found interesting, you're a businessman, too. I mean, you weren't just translating for people. What did you do right after you found this passion and you knew that there was a, a large need for interpretation? My next move was a crazy one because I had been employed as, as a clerk by the Brazilian parliament, which was back then and still is to this day, a dream job. So both of my parents had retired from that place. And it's the kind of retirement where you take home, not just your full pay, Plus, but also a, an added bonus of 20% just because you just retire and you stop contributing. So when you actually move from being an active employee to being an inactive employee, you start getting 50% more of what you were making when you were actually working. So no, this deal doesn't exist anybody anywhere else, I'm sorry, on the planet. Right? So what I did was I, I was not happy. I was young. I was not happy with the kind of job I, I had. And this was too excited not to want to pursue further. So I quit. Mm. I just went uh, one day, I said, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm not happy here. So I decided to quit. And I recall my, my parents, uh, you know, panicking, and they even spoke of maybe sending me somewhere where, where I could maybe have some psychiatric uh, evaluation, because they thought I was crazy, right? So I left the parliament and I set up a translation agency called Depressi in Brazil, which I ran for 17 years. So I was no longer just doing the interpretation. I was now hiring other translators, mm -hmm. other interpreters, and I became a language service provider. So I was in this business for 17 years. So I did, I, I, I did become a, an entrepreneur at that point. And so tell me about the transition from working for someone to now, you know, owning an organization, being responsible for other payroll. Um, and then also, you know, I feel like, you know, you mentioned earlier, this isn't the traditional way to become an interpreter. What did you have to, what skills did you have to acquire? What did you have to learn in addition to just English to Portuguese trans, uh, translation? Was it just focused on one language? Were there other languages? Tell me about the experience as the, the business owner. 
my working languages back then were just Portuguese and English. Okay. In time, I added a few more. I added Spanish as I went, and many, many years later, I added French as well. Hmm. I had some working knowledge of a few more languages, but nothing I could use professionally, like German and Italian. Hmm. But I was also hiring talent in many different languages, right? At that point, it became an operation where you would come to to our agency with any kind of request. And we did some major events back then. We were at a point, one of Brazil's largest uh, agencies, and we were all over the place. Uh, we started doing things uh, internationally um, as well. But the transition was not an easy one. It was an exciting one because uh, it made me very happy. And I'm mission driven. I can't do something that doesn't really speak to my heart. So despite all the bumps and, uh, you know, the shortage of money in the beginning and so on, we had, I, I didn't have one cent put away to actually, you know, no savings, nothing that, that I could use as, as working capital. So we were just building the, the plane as we flew it, right? But it was very exciting. So my understanding from just looking around the people who were in in the in the parliament looking at some of the examples i even had from my parents and so on is that this pays well this is a good job this is safe but i'm probably going to be sick by the time i retire right so it's it's no use to have a lot of money in the bank when you can't use because you're just paying uh, for doctors right Mm. so it became very very apparent at that point that uh, we're here to to take a few risks and, and make uh, something out of our lives. So that was not the first, uh, the, the last time I did this. So later when I also transited out of the UN to found Kudo, it was maybe a, a, a much bigger, a much bigger uh, bat because I was again turning my back to a dream job, a huge salary, good compensation, excellent perks, a full pension, a permanent contract to come to the U.S. and mm. start this business from scratch, a startup that we didn't know had any chance of even growing, right? So, again, I, I guess you can you can see that I'm a little bit of a risk taker, but it's all calculated risks. Yeah. Some serious risk and, you know, some serious courage as well to do something like that. But it seems like for you, Evandro, it's, it's come more natural. And naturally, um, it just happens this way for you, which gives you maybe that certainty that you're comfortable with, if you will. I'm interested from just an interpreter's perspective, how you perceive language, what you look for in others' dialect. I know that we do these podcasts, and when I started, we used to transcribe them, and I look at those transcriptions of Andro, and I go, Jeez, I must have the vocabulary and the dialect of a fifth grader. My dialect is not proper. So what are you specifically looking for? What have you been trained? How have you trained your mind when it comes to analyzing language? Interesting question. There's a lot of technicalities in what we do, right? Uh, The techniques that you employ in order to keep up with speed, in order to handle the different accents, in order to navigate content that you don't initially have. So if somebody says a word that you don't immediately find the equivalent for, and there are coping strategies to navigate around around that difficulty until you land on something. These are all technicalities and so on. But the most appealing aspect of language goes goes beyond the technicalities. Language is a human right. And language is something that's deeply rooted in our identity. So we're having this conversation in English, and I'm doing my best to make sense in a language that's not my own. I speak it well. I've been trained uh, professionally in it. But I show up as a different persona when I'm trying to speak English because my thought process is different. I'm trying to mix things that come naturally to me, but also with a lot of things that come from a different point in my brain where I find equivalence. It's like always constantly going to a shelf and picking the right book and pulling it out and, and reading from that book at every sentence, right? Mm. So it's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effort. When I'm speaking Portuguese, which is my mother tongue, I don't think of anything. So mm. these things just occur naturally to me. And that's when you speak your mind. Mm. 
So if you talk to the man in a language that he understands, but it's not his native language, it goes to his mind. But if you talk to him in a language that it's you know his native tongue, then it goes straight to his heart. Mm. Right? I guess Willy Brandt, the, the German statesman, encapsulated it really neatly when he said, if I'm buying, then I'm happy to speak English with you. But if uh, I'm selling, but if you're selling, I'm sorry, if I am selling, I'm happy to speak English to you. But if you're the one selling and I'm buying, then müssen Sie Deutsch sprechen. Meaning then you got to speak my language, right? So again, uh, there's a limit to what you can do with a language that's, uh, that's not, uh, that's not uh, your own. And the whole notion of what's possible and not possible, they become different when you speak different languages. So multilingualism is not just allowing people to make sense, it's allowing people to show their true colors. And these colors are going to be totally different depending on where you are. There's a lot that goes into your speech that's dictated by the colors you saw, the, the faces you've been accustomed to, the kind of interactions you've experienced back when you know, as a kid, where you come from, and you bring all that to the table, but only if you have the tool to express yourself in a way that's rich and brings it all to the table. Hmm. If I have to all of a sudden translate that into English, I will always do a poorer job than you would do in English. And that's why we use interpreters, because by expressing myself in Portuguese and entrusting that content to someone who fully understands it and can now give it a different clothing, but using native tools that occur to them in a totally different way, I come across exactly as intended. Because again, if, if, if the interpreters are doing a good job, because I'm not hindered by the things that I have to compromise on saying, because this is how I can say it, but it's not exactly what I mean. So it opens up a lot of possibilities. It makes people comfortable. It makes people come forward as they really are. So that's the appeal in language to me. I can see why uh, you like it so much, though. It's very interesting. I mean, it's hard enough already to, you know, interpret or explain something in English to someone in their own negative tongue, whether you're trying to get someone in business to do something or articulate a vision. Uh, everyone's going to interpret that in a different way for marketers, for brands. Um, you know, if you see real, what do you think? Do you think of uh, real leaders? Do you think of uh, sustainable in business? Do you think of authenticity? What, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And there was a quote that really stuck out to me, Evandro, and it was like, I'll, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like the fallacy of communication is that it's actually taking place. And yeah. so being in a role such as, such as an interpreter for the United Nations, you have a very important role. What are some of the conversations that you've had to interpret for that actually have a deep impact in the way we live? Again, interpreters are a funny bunch because you don't get to choose where you're gonna end up next, right? <laughs> so it could be the G20 meeting, it could be a bilateral between two heads of state, or it could be a community uh, meeting where you know, peasants are talking about uh, the rights to a mayor or whatever. And in every meeting, there is beauty. In every meeting, there is something of value that you need to communicate. And people come with a lot at stake and you need to be there for them. But being a diplomatic interpreter, which I was for many years, does get you into, you know, behind doors that you wouldn't ever find yourself in, in, in rooms that you would never find yourself uh, in. And you get to not only experience some of the uh, some uh, some historic events firsthand, but you actually give voice to that. So when you see the news the following day, following say a bilateral meeting with you know between two presidents, what is actually quoted in the Brazilian newspaper are the words exactly as they came out of my mouth. If somebody was taking notes as I did this. Mm. It is not somebody else's rendering of what was said. It's my word choice. It's my contribution to it. And here's an interesting point. We think of interpreters as always impartial. I hear table and I say Mesa, right? Mm. I Oh, there should be an equivalent, an impartial equivalent uh, to everything. And it's never like that. Not, no. The mere fact that you are in the room changes the conversation. Mm. The conversation is going to be different because you are in it. 
And it's a good thing that it does because I can, I always have a number of choices when it comes to the words that I'm going to use. And they all carry different significance depending on whom I'm talking to. There's no such thing as a synonym, right? What I say for blue in Brazil or for red in Africa depends on whether I come from the savannas where there's a, not a lot of trees or whether I come from a very lush part of town where uh, red is nowhere to be seen, right? There are languages where there's no word for, for green because there's no such color anywhere around you, right? Mm. So there's no such thing as synonyms. But I've been privy to very, very uh, interesting conversations. I recall, for example, uh, the nuclear summit that I guess it was 2010, mm. where not only do you get to witness what's happening, but you you get a sense of, okay, I'm, I'm helping the world become safer. I'm helping people you know, deactivate some of those uh, nuclear weapons out there and so on. It gives you a very interesting, very good sense of purpose, just knowing that you were there and you were part of the conversation. It's always funny also when you see the communication happening between you and the head of state. I remember one day, I guess it was the G, G8 or G20 and so on, and all of a sudden the, the microphone's not working. We're in the back in the booth, right? And then it was the first big meeting President Obama was doing. And President Lula was about to speak, and I had the, the microphone activated, so they were listening to English. I was providing that English because Lula was going to speak Portuguese. And all of a sudden, the microphone fails. And all of a sudden, well, I can't hear anything that the president says. And then you press the right button, and before you go, you say, okay, is translation coming through now? Oh, now it is. Thank you. So at that point in time, you're talking to the president. There's a, there's a communication exchange that between these two people, right? In addition to what you're going to say, because Lula said it. So that, those are very interesting moments where you, you can tell he doesn't know, but he heard my voice, right? <laughs> That's interesting. I was going to say, talk about trust, too. I mean, they're putting a lot of trust in you to yeah. understand the underlying meaning of what they say. Have you ever snuck in something, Evandro? Have you ever snuck in, hey, uh, we're actually going to uh, take our army away or uh, denuclearize or anything like that? <laughs> No, no, you can't. I mean, confidentiality is oh, a big, big tender <laughs> of, uh, of this profession, right? And you got to be careful. You got to be, again, as much as your presence may change uh, the outcome of the meeting, your every effort is to not be there and, and get yourself out to the extent possible, right? So you need to be as impartial as you can. Of course, depending on the circumstances, this is going to change. This is the point that I often make. And even some of my colleagues, they get mad at me because there's this thing in everybody's mind that interpreters are supposed to say every word as they were said. That is true, but it's not true, right? You remember, for example, when President Trump was uh, speaking at the United Nations and he was making derogatory comments about the Iranian regime. Mm, right. The interpreters at the United Nations in those booths, they were getting every word exactly as heard. But back in Iran, there was an interpreter doing this live for the national TV. Mm. So he was hearing what was being said and so on. And he was watering down everything that was being said that was critical of the Iranian regime. Mm. And then everybody gets mad and everybody condemns the interpreter and so on. I was asked to share my, my views on that on BBC. Sure. And my point is, depending on where you find yourself and depending on whom the client is, your role is going to be slightly different. So if you're, if you're doing this on national TV in Iran, where it's an offense to even utter a profanity or to say anything negative about the government, you, you have no choice. You have to adapt to what the situation is. Mm. And that's the reason why heads of state, they walk around with their personal interpreters. Mm. Because this guy at this point is not just an interpreter. It's a personal advisor, a trusted advisor who knows what the message Yes. So if in the heat of the moment, I, the president, get carried away and start saying nonsense that goes against what we briefed, that guy's job is to also say, sorry, I didn't get that. Can you please repeat it and give me a hunch, you know, a hint that this is not going where we where we want it. Right. And then it gives you a chance to to rectify uh, things. Right. 
Yeah, I was gonna ask, like, what's what's the protocol? You know, if you get something wrong, like I'm thinking, like I, I remember hearing something about like uh, the Russian president had said we want to bury like all Americans, and it was yeah. just interpreted yeah. so wrongly. He was more talking about like socialism and capitalism, and that was a problem. Yeah. I mean, how fragile uh, interpretation can be, and what it can do um, for, for public opinion, especially in a day and age of Andro where things are so immediate. You know, it's yeah. Oh, someone just said something and an interpreter came out and now it's all over the news. How do we recorrect this stuff? What are some of the things you're working on in terms of innovation, technology, improvement and advancement to rectify situations like this or to, I guess, increase the efficiency of correct interpretation? The incident you're referring to was back in 1956. Mm, yeah, tell me about when, it. When uh, I guess uh, Khrushchev was addressing uh, ambassadors uh, in Moscow at a function, I guess it was at the Polish embassy or something to that effect. And talking about um, capitalism, he said in Russian, the equivalent of we will bury you. And that's how the interpreter rendered it. Right. And the interpreter had been in, you know, the interpreter to uh, Russian presidents for a number of years and continued to interpret for those guys. And he went to this, uh, to his grave defending his version of it. He said that the, the phrase as said could only be interpreted the way I did. Mm. Now, the new ones could be worked on, right? When I say I'm going to bury you, it means that maybe I'm going to do it physically and I'm, I'm going to be there and take personal satisfaction in seeing you die, which is how the West got it. Interpreted. Or it could mean I'm going to bury you because I'm going to outlive you. My mm. system is better. So you, you guys are going to be long dead and we're still going to be around. Right. Right. Which they later claimed that this is what they meant. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Right. Sure. And again, the trust between the interpreter and the guy plays uh, plays a, a big role here. So but it, it, it created all sorts of ways. I actually have a, a TED uh, a lesson on that, an animated video that opens with that. It's called How Interpreters Juggle Two Languages at Once. It opens with that particular incident. You will also recall Again, if you fast forward to, I guess, 2018, I guess it was, or 19, when President Trump and Putin and, you know, met, mm. and there was this huge thing about what was said and what was not said. And so and eventually they wanted to go to the interpreter and recover her notes. Oh, I know of someone, another American who was at the meeting. So let's recover the notes and let's reconstruct what really was said. Uh, based on those notes and so on, which is, again, uh, tough, uh, yeah. totally, totally wrong because the the interpreters uh, usually dispose of those notes immediately after a meeting hmm. and they don't retain any information from meetings because they're busy just getting the equivalents and preparing the next meeting. They're not taking notes to later write a report, right? Hmm. So it's all it's all very relative. In terms of uh, technology, again, yeah. we have witnessed a few major changes in how language interpretation is delivered, right? And we can talk about that next if you want. I don't want to get too long-winded, but basically interpretation is is the, there's always some major uh, case that comes to the fore and changes the business need, mm. right? When simultaneous interpretation started to be done because in the past it was all done consecutively i would speak and stop and then you as my interpreter would render that and we're both standing on stage it's consecutive interpretation we take turns okay. it's tedious and it takes time and when the new system was introduced where you and i speak at the same time and i'm doing this simultaneously from a booth it was right after the world, the Second World War, when the Nazis had to be brought to justice, and they needed to get testimonials and you know, testimonies. I'm sorry, from people in four different languages, at least Russian, mm -hmm. German, English, uh, French, and because the Germans were so good at propaganda, there was a, a need for the the trials to be fair, but also. Expeditious. Is this Nuremberg, if, the Nuremberg trials? The Nuremberg trials. Okay. So if they were, you know, if the trials were too protracted, protracted, 
the there was the fear that the Germans being good at propaganda would turn the tides to their favor because there was no legislation to punish those guys. Mm. There was no law saying that this is a crime called genocide. They had to, you know, create that as they went. And uh, but th that kind of crime could not go unpunished. So they needed to go fast. And that's when they said consecutive interpretation won't do. So we need to find an another system. And it so happened that somebody had experimented with it and so on, and they started trying it, but everybody kicked and screamed. Then it gets established as, as the new system. And you fast forward 75 years, now the world is in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Hmm. And now you can't go anywhere. I can't leave home, you can't leave home, but the, the meetings need to continue. Mm -hmm. The UN needs to continue to meet, the World Bank, the OAS, and just uh, businesses need to continue to do, uh, you know, close deals and so on. Mm. So we needed a new way of delivering the interpretation where the interpreters are not in the room. And that's what my company does now. So the company we founded, myself and Fardad Zabachan and Barha Makavan, again, we had already been experimenting with this just to provide a flexible way of doing things the day you miss a flight. But it turned out to be, again, the timing couldn't, couldn't, have been uh, more uh, perfect because when the world needed it, we had a solution that was already ready and tested. Right? And now you can do this, uh, you can do interpretation professionally at the highest level, working from a home office as an interpreter. And for business leaders listening to this, what are some of the benefits or the needs for these interpreters for an organization like this, especially on a global scale? Anybody who needs to talk to anybody else in a different place where they don't speak your language understands the need for professional language mediation. Right? This takes the form of just having your website translated and localized in different languages with a local flavor. That's why you go online and you see Airbnb, for example, they have their website localized in 60 or 70 different languages, sometimes two or three mm -hmm. versions of Spanish. Mm -hmm. Latin American Spanish, Mexican Spanish, uh, and, and Spanish uh, for, you know, from, from Central Europe, right. Brazilian Portuguese, Portuguese for, for Portugal. Because not only do you want to speak the language, but you want to adapt it to the local flavor, right? Mm -hmm. Again, the whole notion of if you're buying, uh, I need to speak your language, right? right. But it also takes uh, another form of translation of books and materials and so on, but also oral uh, communication. So businesses for a long time have uh, understood the need for for language. But there's this notion that the whole world somehow speaks English, mm. that English is the dominant second language and so mm. on. So many people come to meetings like this and they struggle in a language that's not their own. And they end up with deals that are less than ideal. Mm. Right? I don't succeed in persuading you so well, because in addition to the language, there are ways of saying it. There's intonation that goes with it. There's the body language that I also need to understand, uh, depending on where I am. So businesses everywhere kind of understand the need, only it was not affordable. It was not possible to jump on a call and fly interpreters to Tokyo and be in Tokyo for a 45-minute meeting. Mm. Now it is totally okay, because I'm where I am, you are in Tokyo. Interpreters could be anywhere, and the meeting just takes place for 45 minutes, and that's what I compensate the interpreters for. No flying, no logistics, none, none of the accommodations that would otherwise have to take place. So it became something, again, that nice-to-have feature is now affordable, and you can go to it, and Kudo and other companies make that available now through professional interpreters. You can have it at exact same quality. And that's new. Avandra, I have so many questions right now. I'm just fired in my brain. Um, uh -huh. First one is this. Will there ever come a point where AI can do the same? Me right now, knowing kind of the inefficiencies of AI, I don't think so. I think you really do need a person to understand that, again, that cultural language, that subset, that underlying meaning of kind of what this is. But will AI be a, you know, uh, ever be an option for something like this at, at scale? That's that's the million dollar question. Okay. We yeah. we can only speculate at this point. But given time, anything is possible, okay. uh, Kevin. 
So, and as more companies do what we do, as Kudo advances in what it does, we have millions of minutes of meetings done in pretty much any language where you have the perfect equivalent of what was said in English to the same message in German, mm, okay. Japanese, Chinese. So big data is data. accumulating to a level that wasn't possible Sorry. before. You had the same, you've had the same in written communications, translation, corpora, and so on for a long time. But oral communication, it's the first time we're amassing such a huge database of raw data that we can do a lot with, right? right. So in the future, a lot more is going to be possible than, than what has been possible so far. Now, consider this. If we're having this conversation and you don't like the, the color of my shirt, right? Or like you don't like the color yellow and I'm, I'm being facetious and I say, yes, yeah, I, yes, sir, I see your point. Yeah, sure. And you never wear yellow, right? If you're not seeing this, you can't tell that I'm talking, you know, that I'm being ironic because you aren't wearing a, a mm. yellow shirt. Right. See, I'm just being ironic. The words that I'm saying contradict what the meaning is. I'm saying, oh, you never wear yellow. But everybody sees that you're wearing yellow right now, and this is me picking on you. Mm. So these are the kind of things that AI is going to have a harder time picking up on because it's, it goes beyond language. This is not just even body language. This is a visual input that should go along with the language. So that's where the levels of complexity start to, to, to get so high that language is probably going to be the last thing that a computer will competently do. Now, if, you, if we're talking about a demo that a company does every day with the same jargon, the same knowledge, a pre-scripted uh, kind sure. of routine, you can train a machine to do that in no time, and you can even anticipate what the questions are going to be if you have enough, enough uh, raw material, uh, raw minutes uh, meeting. So, and if, again, the environment is not too unforgiving, Right. If you're talking about NATO and the UN and whatever, no chance. But if again, this is just a company trying to sensitize millions of users about what they do. It's like that little thing where you go to a Chinese website, you have no clue what's what's there. And there's a button translate. You click the button. It gives you the gist of what they're saying. Mm. There's horrible mistakes there, but it gives you the gist uh, of what what you're saying. So oral communication, because of the original sayings, because of the many ways in which you can engage in conversation, it's probably going to be the last frontier. But I am among those who believe that this will come to pass. It's mm -hmm. a matter of time and a matter of you know, where we apply our industry. Let me end with a quote, and which, uh, I'm sorry, with a joke that I heard like 20 years ago. They said that the Chinese had invented a machine that could immediately translate anything from English to Chinese, right? Anything, machine translation, okay. And they called the ambassador for the inauguration of this big thing, the British ambassador to Beijing. And then they said, okay, say anything. And the machine is gonna translate that into Chinese. And then he said, uh, okay, so let's try this. Out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> so it was still written translation. So they entered that string of text out of sight, out of mind, exactly as said. And out came a, a series of Chinese characters. And then he said, okay, now please fit that back in, fit those Chinese characters in. Let's see what comes up. Mm -hmm. And they did. And out came a blind idiot. <laughs> out of sight and out of, out of sight, mind. Out of mind. <laughs> so it's hard to argue that the, the machine did the didn't get it right. Yeah, right? exactly. That was good. Again, these are these are the challenges with communication. Right? That's comedy. That's comedy. Who knew they invented a comedian? Um, now, I have a few more questions. And the first one is just like, just based on what you said, you know, there's so many different forms of communication. And there's so many different ways people like to learn. Are there any languages that are more difficult to interpret than others? I think of, you know, just English or you know German, anything that comes from the root of Latin, versus yeah. characters in Chinese, Japanese, uh, other languages that are harder to interpret than others for your interpreters. 
You, you could argue that way. Again, difficulty in language is a relative concept because if I try to learn Hungarian, sorry, it's going to be incredibly difficult because I there's nothing in my language that has any relationship mm. uh, to Hungarian. But if I was born in Hungary, I'm sorry, in Hungary, then it occurs naturally to me. So if I was born in Serbia, then it's easy enough for me to pick up Russian. Well, for a Brazilian like me, it's nearly impossible. Not impossible, but it takes a lot of effort. Right? Sure. So it depends where you're coming from and so on. Now, languages go by families too. So you have languages that are like Latin-based or are Anglo-Saxon in nature and so on. In time, they start to share a few of those elements and that's why you have a lot of latin in in english mm -hmm. and a lot of anglo-saxon words also in other languages so you could argue that what in terms of interpretation the structure means more than than the actual semantics or the relative difficulty of speaking a language it has to do with the order of elements so for example if you if you say uh, in English, that you close the door, you say, I closed the door, right? But if you're saying, because I closed the door, if you try to say the same thing in English, uh, in German, the order of elements get, uh, gets inverted. And then the verb, or at least a particle of the verb, is going to be pushed to the end of the sentence. Right, right. So if I'm an interpreter trying to keep up with what happened to the door, I have to wait until that last sentence comes in for me to actually know if the door was closed or open, right, 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 right. right? Especially in German, where they they divide the verb in two. Mm -hmm. So aufmachen and zu machen, these are two different verbs: fish, uh, close and open. If I say ich mache die Tür zu, it means I closed it. If I say ich mache die Tür auf, it means I opened it. Only I can now interject ten different adjectives to qualify the door and say that it's a little. Uh, a blue door, a big door, a, a cheap door, and so on. All those are going to come before auf or zu. So if I'm an interpreter doing this in German, I have to grasp a lot from the context, much more so than uh, an English interpreter would do or a, a Brazilian Portuguese interpreter would do. So, And if you go from, say, English to Turkish, then it's complete reversal in the order of elements, right? where the subject comes in the end and the verb comes somewhere else and it's totally reversed. Mm. So that's what uh, presents most of the difficulties. It's in the timing because you got to wait for that little particle while retaining in your mind everything else that was said because you need to spit that out after you hear the final word. Right? Mm. So it's, it's, it's a bit complicated in that regard, yes. Interpretation seems to be complicated and always has been. And there's a layer of trust, you know, the individual has to have with the interpreter themselves, it seems like. What are your thoughts on things as powerful as the Bible, as the Torah, as a, 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 you know an ancient philo philosophical book that's been interpreted over years and years and years? Is there any danger of that? And what are your thoughts on just the overall interpretation process that's gone through over thousands of years, I guess? The... The person who translated the Bible into Latin, Jerome, who later was canonized as Saint Jerome, hmm. is the patron saint of translators for that reason, right? Hmm. And he used to say that translation is by definition an imprecise exercise because you're making decisions all the time, right? Again, going back to the notion that synonyms don't exist. Hmm. So you're always making choices. And when you make a choice, a lot of what you bring to the fore is there, right? What you think is important, what you think is relative, and so on and so forth. Jerome was criticized, heavily criticized, by some translations that he did of the scriptures. And he had to defend himself by saying that, again, establishing what translation really was. So there's a famous letter that he wrote to a senator called Pamachius, where he was under attack exactly because of that. And he was trying to explain to the senator in his defense that translation is ju not just merely replacing words. It's something else. Mm. 
and that even in the cases where you might make a mistake calling John, uh, you know, mistaking John for Frank, the purity of the intent is not tarnished because of that, you know, minor um, alteration and things like that. So, and he goes back to the scriptures to show that even the uh, in the Gospels, even the apostles, they sometimes made those sorts of mistakes, which doesn't take away from the message that they were conveying and so on and so forth. Hmm. Now, of course, you know, consider this. This is a guy who went to the desert to try and translate the Bible into Latin. Right. There were no Google Translate. There was yeah. no Internet. There weren't, there weren't even dictionaries. He had a, maybe a handful of assistants who could help him with this and that. But he basically had to learn those languages, right? He did part of it from Greek and part of it from Aramaic, the original language in which some of the texts were. And there's always potentially some uh, um, risk of loss there. So every time you present yourself to do what we do, to interpret it and put in your own words what other people have said or written, you can expect some level of pushback and some level of criticism, and the critics will not be totally wrong. Hmm. So again, it's part of that imprecision that goes into translating things from one semantic universe into another. It's hmm. not just in the words, and it's always going to be subject hmm. uh, to, to criticism, right? Again, uh, over the years, once you have enough people doing it and so on these things kind of equalize because you compare the many versions and you come to a place but whoever did it first may have introduced a, a number uh, of things that are not totally uh, accurate depending mm -hmm. on on where they're coming from right interesting interesting is it fair to say you need people to translate properly the reason i ask that is you think about rosetta stone and just the ancient hieroglyphs and how no one's been able to crack the code. If there was a new alien species to come here today or a new language to form out of nowhere. Would you need people that understand it first to communicate with? You need people, but not, not necessarily translators or linguists. Mm -hmm. I guess it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who criticized that movie, The Arrival. You know, the mm -hmm. movie, The yeah, Arrival, yeah, where yeah. these guys come, the aliens the come, and there's... They're trying, they're trying to communicate, and so and they call a linguist, right? Which is a good bet. But he said, I would call a data analyst. I would call someone who can recognize patterns, who can you know, look for meaning in different ways other than just compare languages because mm -hmm. we're talking about a language that we don't know, right? I guess it's the Voyager, and I don't know what probe it is from NASA that carries a plaque where we try very hard to communicate in different ways who we are. There's a drawing showing the position of the Earth. There is a golden disk with, uh, you know, greetings in pretty much every language on Earth. Uh, there is binary uh, encoded information. There is a transistor. There is God knows what, right? In an effort to say, hey, try to make sense of this. We're giving you the message in many different formats. Maybe you can make a sense of it which is, again, going back to Rosetta Stone, how they cracked the code, because the message was present in two different languages. It was the same message, three different mm -hmm. languages. The same message conveyed in three different languages. And then after a lot of work, you can cross-reference some of those things and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, communication is basically, on Earth, a human, um, a human phenomenon, right? You can argue that the dogs communicate, but they don't have language. Language is a human phenomenon. They have ways of signaling specific patterns, like when I bark this way, maybe I'm in trouble. When I do this, it's because of that I'm hungry. But they can't get pieces of that bark and combine them in thousands of different ways to actually talk about philosophy. Hmm. Right? That, those elements of barking, they decompose a language. Right? They can't be used freely with an intelligent mind to actually communicate different uh, meanings and different uh, aspects and subjects and so on. It's all, again, pre, you know, canned messages, if you will. Uh, according you know, two, two whistles means this, one whistle means that. So it's like in the, in the ancient times, it's the, the drums, right? right? They always mean something. You can't have a conversation and, and tell people about a book using drums, right? Hmm. 
So it's so humans, yes. For the time being, we do need humans, yes. It's interesting though. I wonder what your thoughts are on how someone can best be effective in a conversation. Because when you think about the dog example, like that's an emotion that's resulting in a bark. Oh my gosh, another squirrel! Blah blah blah. You know, or same thing for a human. If somewhere to come and say you're working at a subway and someone's coming in, they have a bad day and they're demanding their sandwich, you know, you may take that the wrong way. Whereas in reality, they're just having a horrible day. They may be a great person. What are some strategies or what are some thoughts you have, I guess, Avandro, on how someone can be present and effective in communicating and articulating a vision or a clear set of rules? I forgot the name of the guy, but there's there's one couple on the internet that sell a package on effective communication. Hmm. And on the spots that I've seen, the, the commercials I've seen, he starts by saying, talking is the most dangerous thing you will ever do. Because you can easily get in trouble just by talking. Right? True. Talking is an immediate connection between your mind and your emotions. Hmm to your tongue and and how things come out. And how many times have you regretted something you said? Mm. So it it has less to do with language and more to do, of course, with your state of mind and your your, uh, emotional control. So and the thoughts in that regard are more important than the the language themselves. And you don't think in language, you think in images, right? Mm. When you think about what you did yesterday and so on, you don't tell yourself the story, I woke up and I did this. You just remember the images as they occurred to you and you form a picture, a full picture of what your day your day was. So in that sense, language is an element that comes late in the trail. So the job is not really to work on the language. The job is really to work on your uh, presence and your mindfulness about where you are and what your feelings are and controlling that before they translate into speech. Mm. That's That's the difficult part. I heard an argument the other day about the mask in public schools and teachers wearing masks. And I don't have a position on this at all. Uh, but is do you think that's going to be a problem for teachers trying to communicate something? One, they already have a problem. They, they're, they're trying to educate you know little school kids. But two, uh, are, is that going to be a problem for the, the young school kids in terms of their development of understanding the language, wearing masks? You're wearing masks and talking like this you know, yes yeah it changes how you sound but mm. more importantly it changes how you come across with your facial expressions mm. there's only so much you can grasp from what i'm saying through the words the fact that you see me as we do this mm. adds a, a different flavor and uh, helps you come to the meaning of what i'm saying mm. and you have to consider that in schools you have different levels of understanding you know, you have immigrants, you have people who don't fully have an understanding, say, of English, but you also have people who are uh, hearing impaired, who don't totally rely on the words. They need to look at your lips. They need to look at your facial expressions and so on. And by imposing the mask, which is the right thing to do given the pandemic, if we have to live with that uh, permanently, it's going to change how we communicate and we'll have to find ways to actually do this. Mm. On Kudo, for example, we have sign language interpretation. Mm. Okay? And of course, the, the interpreters have a hard time understanding what people are saying. And the, the sign language interpreter cannot wear a mask. Right. Because the, the intonation in sign language is given by the face. Mm. So if you, if you sign a word and the word is, say, uh, tomorrow. Interesting. It, can, it could be tomorrow. It could be tomorrow and it's a question for example i'm guys if you're a sign language interpreter i'm totally making this up <laughs> again just trying to give you guys a notion of what i'm talking about right the, the, the example might be very poor so it will change the, the way we communicate that's most definitely yes interesting it's very interesting and for people listening to this on audio if you want to understand and, and get the visual part of the conversation head on over to crowdcast and, and re-watch this episode on there um, Evandro, it's been an interesting conversation to say the least today. I'm so happy we had you on the show today. Uh, I'm very interested in what the future beholds for Kudo and for interpretation and for people come together to understand a common message. So with that, 
uh, thought process in mind, Evandro. The last question I have for you today is, what is your definition of a real leader? Thank you, Kevin. Again, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a, a fun conversation. So I guess we, we, we met then, that uh, objective. I'm going to use that to tell you, to share with the viewers uh, a story that I think is very, very urgent. Mm. And again, something that is at the core of leadership interest. We are witnessing a huge humanitarian issue with uh, the situation now left in Afghanistan, particularly involving the language mediators that helped the U.S. troops and the, you know, the, the allied uh, troops communicate and, and be safe for a number of years. So it's now 20 years since 9-11. And for 20 years, the troops going to Afghanistan and before that Iraq have relied on interpreters who kept our troops safe and who not only allowed them to communicate, but also shared the, the cultural codes and, and again, uh, allow them to make sense of reality in ways that are, you know, that are the difference between uh, life and death. As the troops get withdrawn, interpreters are being left behind. Hmm. And these interpreters, because they aided the U.S. troops and the, and the foreign troops, they become targets of violence, not only them, but their, their families. Hmm. So there's a huge need to bring those guys and girls over to a point where they can feel secure and where they are not liable to this kind of violence until we can clear a, a way for them to, to immigrate either to the US or other countries. This is a discussion that has been going on for a long time and it goes back to the core of leadership, which is you don't leave behind the people who helped you when you most needed, right? Mm -hmm. it's, there's a moral obligation, I guess, in helping these people out. I totally understand that this needs a process for people to actually be uh, brought to a different country. There's a lot of risk involved. There's a process that needs to be followed. But we urgently need to do uh, to expedite the process in, in a way that's safe, but that safeguards the lives of these incredible language mediators and who are basically war heroes, if you, if you look at them right. So I'm, I'm going to uh, end with an appeal that we start getting educated on this, on this issue. Kudu is also getting educated on the issue and trying to help to the extent possible. I would invite our viewers to go to a, a web page called noonleft.org, which is a, an organization called No One Left Behind. And they're doing all they can to you know, galvanize the community in, in finding a way to expedite this for the sake of these brave men and women who were left behind in Afghanistan. So if we manage to do that, we will have uh, done what I think is at the very core of leadership, and that is to lead by example hmm. and to, again, share a, a, a beautiful story of loyalty and, and love eventually, ultimately. Vondra is pow powerful and, uh, you know, just hard hitting. It's very hard hitting to wrap up this show and it's unfortunate that that's happening right now. And let's try to get that link into the chat box here. No one left org. People go and help yeah. out the cause. Um, everyone plays a role in this and there are people struggling during this conversation. That's very hard to comprehend. Um, for Evandro Magalis, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Don't leave people behind that got you there. And always folks, Keep it real. Thanks, Evandro. And again, just to, to confirm the website, I just went online here. It's no one left, all in one word, dot org. And there's a lot that you can do there. And again, according to your, um, your conscience and according to your principles and so on, I'm just bringing to the fore a humanitarian crisis that needs visibility. Mm. And we would love for our viewers to get educated on that and do all they can to help mitigate this uh, situation. And thank you, Kevin, very much for allowing me this outlet so we could discuss this. Yeah, absolutely. And end on this. Yeah. Absolutely. Anytime. It was very interesting today. I learned a lot. Uh, Likewise. Yeah, you Likewise. know, it's just, um, I had a friend that told me, you know, one of the most powerful and interesting people he's ever spoken to was an interpreter. Just the way they think about language, the way they can break it down, um, their understanding and their education, their experiences, just a fascinating uh, person uh, to talk to, to talk to. So when this came my way, it was a no brainer for us. 
Um, I want to turn this now to the audience, Evandro, and if you're willing to take one of their questions. We did have one fly in, so if you're listening to this still on live or on LinkedIn, come on over to Crowdcast and ask your questions to Evandro. The first one, Evandro, comes from Christiana, and she asks, Evandro, I'm noticing that with applying for jobs in social impact, they're asking what languages I speak. I only speak English, but feel it would be valuable to learn a language or languages working in a global field. What languages would you recommend learning and how would you recommend learning them best? Interesting question. Thank you very much. What's the name of the person again? I'm sorry. Christiana. Christiana, thank you very much for for tuning in. And thank you to all the other colleagues. And now I'm now sensitized to the the chat and I see Barry here, my good friend at Kudo. I see Luciana Fiaio, who tells me here that we go back a long way, right? Mm -hmm. So very nice to have you all here. Again, the, the choice of languages, right? Language, uh, I tell my, my kids, for example, who are totally bilingual, that in their generation, not speaking English, if you're, say, in Brazil, is a form of illiteracy, right? Mm. So English, for example, is a must. But for those who already speak English, if, all, if you're looking for a different language, then you have to ask yourself, what are you trying to accomplish, right? Mm. For example, I, for many years, um, kind of got lazy on learning French because where I was, French was not important. The minute I stepped out of Brazil and particularly in Europe, doing what I was doing, French became absolutely important. So it depends on, on where you, you see yourself ending up and the kind of surroundings even that you have when you look around. So if you're in the United States, Spanish is the, is the most obvious choice because of the number of people that you can interact with. but if you have roots in Lebanon, if you have roots in, in China and so on, you may want to go with a different language. Now, take the easy route. Every language you learn is, you know, first language you learn is difficult. Second language you learn becomes easier and easier and easier because there's always elements of one language into the others. Right. So go with the low-hanging fruit first, right? So if I'm Portuguese or Brazilian and I speak Portuguese, I don't want to go straight to Serbian, right? I may get there, but I want to go to Spanish, which is just, you know, close by, and then Italian, and then French, right? I tried learning German, and I took six years of German classes. I have three certificates of German. I worked for Lufthansa for two years, only speaking German. I took a master's degree in Europe, in half of it in in German, and I was very proud of my German. But it was so much effort to learn that language because it has nothing to do with Portuguese. So I went 10 years without being in contact with Germans and I forgot pretty much everything. (laughs) But it's a hard thing to keep. So go with the languages that make more sense to you. And and again, the things that will end up being being, uh, useful for you in the future, right? And please resist the temptation to think that the more languages you speak, the better off you're going to be. That's not true. Just go with the languages that make sense to you. This is particularly true, guys, for linguists, interpreters, Mm -hmm. who think that by speaking 10 different languages, they have a better chance of landing a job with the UN. That's not true, right? Depending even on your mother tongue, all you may need to add is very specific languages. If you're, you know, looking at becoming an interpreter for the UN and your language is English, you don't want to learn Chinese or Arabic. All you need to add is French and Spanish or Russian and Spanish, in addition to French, and that's it. Evandro, uh, best best language, follow-up question here, best language for business owners to learn? Is it Spanish, is it Chinese, Japanese, German? Assuming you already speak uh, English? English, if you already speak English, yes. Assuming they already speak English. Again, it depends on, on where you are. Okay. Yeah, so if, in the, if you're in the US, Spanish is a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. If you're in Europe, then French might be a lot more useful. It depends on where you are, basically. And again, how do I learn languages? What what do I suggest as far as learning languages? I love a course, and this is free advertisement for them, guys. I'm not getting a penny. I love a software, not software, a system called Pimsleur. P-I-M-S-L-E-U-R. Pimsleur. If you go online, pimsleur.com, I guess it is, you'll find pretty much any language. The beauty of it is that you can, it's all on audio and it's 30 minutes a day. So you can listen to it and go walk your dog 
and you repeat a few things to yourself. People are going to think you're crazy because you're talking to yourself, but it's an easy way to grasp at least the beginnings of a language, right? The, you know, the, the basic structures and so on. And from there, you can go forward. This is how I cut my French courses when I went to Geneva by half, just by doing 90 days of this uh, little training. I cut like two and a half years of former schooling that I otherwise would have had to sit through. So free advertisement, guys. I love it. I have Pimsleur. I got to get back on it, though. It's hard to you know, keep up with the language. Uh, Evandro, appreciate you coming on. Any last words or where can, people can find more information about Kudo? I guess it was Victor Hugo who said that final words are for people who haven't said enough. <laughs> I feel I have exhausted your patience by talking too much. So oh, no. only my only last word is thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real leaders podcast we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did if you had to go at any point in this conversation or if you want to listen to this again make sure to subscribe to the leaders podcast that's on apple Podcasts. just go to the search bar search the podcast and also folks if you could just leave us a review on that channel it'd mean the world to us it helps us with our ratings help people like Evandro did notice so if you do that for us we'd appreciate it with that being said that's it for me thanks for being a leader and always folks And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real